Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And normally, when a person revolutionizes not one, but two industries, uh, you'd think they would become a household name. And that's not really the case with today's topic. Uh, this isn't exactly a globetrotting tale. Uh, he spent most of his life in just a couple cities, uh, the person that we're primarily talking about. But elements of his life story are certainly known the world over. And in his, his home area, uh, he's quite well known. And so this is about a man, it's about gambling, it's about burlesque, as well as other forms of entertainment. But uh, you don't need to worry, it is kid safe unless you do not want them exposed to the concept of betting on animals, uh, which is, has its own ball of problems. Uh, but what it's about, sort of above everything else, is entrepreneurial spirit. And uh, we're going to be talking about the entrepreneurial spirit of one man in particular, whose name was Joseph Ulay. So, to start at the beginning... Joseph Ulay was born in Terrassa, Spain, on February 10th, 1839. And his father worked in the family business, which was textiles, although it apparently did not particularly suit the elder Ulay, uh, whose name was Francois. But when Joseph was born, his father, who was 25 at the time, had already moved to Paris to work with his cousin in his textile mill. So he didn't want to run this small family business, but he was okay with staying in textiles. And Francois, I feel like we should point out, had not abandoned his family to go to Paris. He moved there intending to set up a stable situation so that he could then send for um, his wife, Marie-Thérèse, and their new baby. Two years after Joseph was born, Marie-Thérèse and her toddler child made the move to Paris, and Francois and his wife expanded their family with two more children, Alexandre and Jean. And growing up, Joseph worked for his father in Paris, but eventually Francois became concerned that his son, who had been born in Spain and was Catalan, had never learned to speak Spanish. So when Joseph was 17, he was shipped off to Bilbao, Spain, as a sort of immersion plan, although that they speak a very different language in Bilbao than, uh, you know, the Catalan would normally speak. Uh, so that was a little bit weird, but it ended up being important for him. Uh, it's here attending cockfights, that Joseph witnessed a number of betting disputes among the spectators. And it's likely that this kind of planted the seed in his young mind that would germinate later. Yeah, and he participated in the betting from a very early age. Like, he was into gambling. And I I just feel like we should say as a sidebar, personally, I will give my own opinion on this, cockfighting is horrible and terrible, and I don't think of it as a sport. And it is sort of troubling to me that people bet on animals fighting, but just have to include it as part of the historical record. Uh, but after he returned to Paris, Olay became a fan of horse races and the betting that went on there. Uh, and horse racing was really becoming extremely popular in Paris, particularly in the 1860s and on. And he, he attended races all over the city because tracks were basically popping up everywhere. And he would witness these wagers that were struck between, you know, men of means, like just personal wagers between two men. Um, but he really became super interested in the concept of these sort of like smaller potatoes bet makers, like this concept of the betting pool. 
And in this instance, this is where multiple gamblers uh, with smaller amounts of cash to wager, they couldn't make the big bets that wealthier men could, would basically purchase uh, random tickets. And those tickets would be assigned to specific horses. And the holder of the ticket associated with the winning horse would take the pool. So it was kind of a randomized betting pool. In 1865... He opened a business to take advantage of the popularity of this pool system. And he also had a mobile office, which was a gambling wagon that he would park in the Champ de la Marche with other mobile offices all ready to take bets. Uh, it's sort of like a food truck park, but with gambling instead of sesame fries. Yeah, like not the delicious food, but all of these little mobile gambling trucks would show up and they would all you know, be available to take bets for these betting pools. And pool gambling was extremely popular, as you can imagine, uh, but it was a little bit problematic. Um, gambling on games of chance was actually illegal in Paris at this time, and Ulay was concerned that he could be shut down for his enterprise because he sold random ticket assignments. So it was basically a huge game of chance. And this whole dilemma led to a complete shift in the way sports betting was handled. So before we get into how he kind of revolutionized betting, uh, let's take a quick ad from a sponsor. Okay, so back to Joseph Ulay and his gambling methodology. So to combat this problem of this previous method of betting being purely chance-based, Ulay came up with a betting system that put the gambler's knowledge to work. And this became known as the Pari Mutuel system. So his new approach to betting required the gambler to select the horse they believed would win. And for regular bettors, this made gambling into something of a science because they would benefit from learning about the racing horses, both in general and in the specific sense of tracking a particular animal's animal's performance. It sounds sort of self-explanatory today. Yeah, I mean, they're, it's so common now to just hear even like friends or uh, like coworkers discussing like a person's batting average and how that's going to affect the team and their likelihood. Or when they pick fantasy football, like they, everybody has all the stats. And that's really, this was the birth of that idea and that approach to uh, betting on sports with Joseph Houlet. And so this new business venture, being brand new, you would think, would have been a gamble in and of itself, but it was not in the least. It paid off immediately. And uh, he, I mean, he just immediately had people ready to place bets. And I think it's also uh, part of the sort of that human spirit where you like to put your knowledge to work a little bit. So it was very appealing on a different level than just gambling. And he even started publishing the Bulletin de Course, which was, in effect, the first racing form where it would include the stats on horses and any information about them. And he even started offering betting for races that were taking place not just in France, but also in Great Britain. So he was kind of expanding uh, the betting options for people. The first year of this off-course betting business was the same year that Paris hosted Napoleon III's pet project, the Paris Exhibition. And this meant that in addition to his regular Parisian customers, he was getting some international travelers in the mix as well, which contributed to his success and the rapid growth of his business. And the way he was making money off of all of this was that he was taking a commission uh, for taking and managing all of these bets. And he was getting 5 to 10% of the money. So if it was a really big pool, he would only take 5%. If it was smaller, he would take 10 Uh But there was so much cash flowing through his office. And there were so many races, especially once he had expanded 
the race offerings into other into being able to bet on races in other countries that he amassed a small fortune rather quickly. In the late 1860s, French authorities really cracked down on gambling, and this could have just put him out of business, but his switch away from pool betting had proved to be a really wise move. Yeah, Perry Mutuel kind of saved him in the end. The uh, Court of Cassation, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, which is the highest court in France, had was examining this idea of, you know, how... Uh, gambling and betting should be handled and what was going to be legal and what wasn't. And they did indeed decide that pool gambling was illegal in a a ruling that was made on June 6th of 1869. But Perry Mutuel was determined to be safe from this judgment as it was not considered a game of chance because it relied on people's intellect and knowledge. This doesn't mean that his enterprise just sailed right along, though. Outside of the gambling world, there were other events unfolding that made Paris a really tumultuous place to live. Uh, yeah, so during the winter of 1870 to 1871, uh, Prussians, which were leading several independent German states that France had been at odds with, uh, surrounded Paris, and they eventually defeated France uh, in the Franco-Prussian War. Right on the heels of that defeat, as Napoleon III's government was crumbling and a peace treaty with Germany was being negotiated, the people of Paris rose up against the French government. And the events of the resistance, known as the Paris Commune, lasted from March 18th to May 28th, 1871. And uh, those could easily be topics in and of themselves for full podcasts, but I just wanted to give you a quick kind of here's what was going on and why Joseph Ouellet had, in fact, gotten out of Paris for a while. He fled to London before the Prussian invasion even happened. But once the political turmoil of uh, the winter of 1870 and the first half of 1871 had died down, he returned to Paris uh, and he picked his business right back up where he had left off. And it was immediately successful again. So after he came back to France... Ulay modernized his bookmaking business by printing out tickets mechanically, and this proved to be another boost to sales. But at this point, his growth became a detriment. His 5 million francs a year business and auto-printed tickets were now viewed as illegal gambling by the French government. Yeah, since he was automatically generating some of the tickets, I think my understanding is that it then kind of got a little fuzzier in terms of no, no, this isn't always a scientific process. Like people aren't always relying on their research. Uh, and Ulay actually tried to negotiate a deal with the authorities uh, where the government would take control of perimutuel betting. But this kind of fell on deaf ears. They were not willing or ready to uh, create a whole new sort of government office to handle that. And he ended up going to trial uh, in 1875 for his illegal business. And this trial did not go well. Parimutuel Gambling joined betting pools as an illegal enterprise, and Ulay was sentenced to jail time of 18 days. His whole betting business was shut down. So after uh, Ulay had, you know, gone to jail and served his time, which apparently was very upsetting for him, as you can imagine, uh, he really felt like that was a, a mark of failure to some degree. Uh, he... It went back to his life, but he he really wasn't beaten down by that incident. Uh, he did continue to have a hand in the racing and gambling world, even after his imprisonment uh, in the legal areas of it. But he primarily moved on to other money-making enterprises. Uh, he apparently, when he had been in London that brief time during the political tumult in Paris, he had been introduced to the theater and the idea of entertainment in that 
arena. And so he turned his betting office that he had had into a cafe and a theater. And this actually kicked off a series of ventures in entertainment that he, uh, established, one of which was called Le Nouveau Cirque, uh, which actually featured circus shows during the winter, like in cooler months. It was an indoor circus. And then in warmer months, it transitioned and became a pool and swimming center. So it's kind of a multi-use facility. But his most famous entertainment endeavor was the creation of a venue that's still entertaining crowds today. So to set the scene, in 1889, Paris was deep in the Belle Epoque, uh, during which France was full of optimism. There was so much growth in the areas of art and science. And at this point, the middle class began to enjoy sort of the leisure activities that had once been reserved exclusively for the wealthy. And as a consequence, the entertainment industry really boomed. Cabarets became an ever more popular form of entertainment, and they were popping up all over the city. Le Chat Noir and Les Folles Bergères were just two of the establishments that were attracting crowds and making money. Yeah, he had really switched his sort of focus as an entrepreneur over to entertainment at exactly the right time. And as this uh, entertainment industry grew, he had become, you know, pretty experienced in opening and running these sorts of venues. And he decided, uh, again in 1889, that he was going to partner with a man named Charles Zidler. And that he was a showman who would be able to run the day-to-day operations of a dance hall and sort of bridge the gap between the the business side of it and the artist's. And uh, if his name sounds familiar, by the way, Jim Broadbent's character, Harold Zidler, in Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge, is based at least partly on him. Although uh, there are some historians that say that really Harold Zidler is a combo of Ulay and Charles Zidler. The two of them bought this dilapidated dance hall called the White Queen, and it was a mess with a crumbling facade. They renovated the building. They put a huge windmill on top and painted it red. And this, of course, became a Paris icon. Yeah, it was an extremely ambitious plan for a really crappy looking building. It would be like, we're going to make a fabulous palace out of this old shack. But it worked. Uh, and although there were a lot of renovations kind of constantly going on and Ulay and Zidler really kind of shot for the stars in all of their planning, uh, they weren't done with everything on time. But Ulay was pretty adamant that they stick to their schedule. So even though there were still sort of transition uh, renovations going on and things were not complete. They opened the doors as scheduled on October 6th of 1889, promptly at 8 p.m. The Moulin Rouge drew crowds right out of the gate. Uh, but Ulay and Zidler uh, weren't content to simply coexist with the other dance halls. They wanted to outdo them all. So they started hiring the top acts away from other venues, including Louise Weber, better known as La Goulou, or the Glutton, because of her endless thirst for alcohol. Weber was outrageous in every way, and during the Belle Epoque, that was a huge draw. And then they also bought uh, the mammoth wooden elephant from the 1900 World's Fair, and they moved it into the garden which surrounded their dance hall. And they built a stage inside the elephant that offered semi-private shows for men only, so it was a little bit more adult in there. So all of these famous icons that we associate with Paris, uh, and particularly the Moulin Rouge, were really the ideas of... Charles Zidler and Joseph Ulay. The history of the Moulin Rouge is full of stories and scandal and drama, which could become podcasts all on their own. But the important thing for the scope of this episode is to note that Ulay devoted a great deal of time, money, and energy into making it spectacular. 
In his eyes, he was making a theater of the highest order, even if the acts were often pretty raunchy. Uh, he likely never could have anticipated the historical fame of the Moulin Rouge, but he was always aiming as high as he could with it. Yeah, he was sort of a man who um, created success. So not only had he revolutionized betting, but he really kind of raised the bar in the entertainment industry and made it about like always plussing it and, you know, never to be content. You could always be building more. You could always be bringing in more audience. You could always make the crowd more astounded. So those sorts of concepts really were kind of born with him, which I think is fabulous. Uh It is worth noting that while Ulay had been focusing on entertainment from the 1870s on, I mentioned earlier that he did still have a hand in the legal aspects of betting, although to a much lesser degree. But France did eventually implement a version of Ulay's peri-mutuel betting system as sort of a government-run operation. And this was in 1887. And Ulay did get a piece of the action, uh, the government involved him and he worked with a government agency that was set up to run the system. So he kind of advised and managed some aspects of it. And he also patented a machine uh, that could issue and keep track of the sales of tickets. And sometimes you'll actually hear the word parimutuel used to refer to machines that generate tickets in betting establishments. In October 1919, Carmen Caelo, who was Ulay's wife since 1869, died, and he moved out of their home next to the Jardin de Paris, which encircled the Moulin Rouge, and into an apartment. And he lived there the rest of his life, although he traveled to Côte d'Azur in the winter months each year. And Ulay died on April 19th of 1922, and his grave in Père Lachaise, who several other topics, uh, people that have been topics of podcasts that we talked about are also buried there. And his grave bears the inscription, Son intelligence égale son cœur, which translates to his intelligence equals his heart. So it's interesting to me because that's one of those people that, again, uh, I think m- most French citizens would know about him and perhaps Spanish as well, since he was originally from Spain. But we never hear about him here, certainly, and I would bet many other countries never hear his name. Yeah, well, and having even heard a lot about the Moulin Rouge and having studied French, which I'm sure no one can tell from the way I ever pronounce <laughs> French words on this podcast, uh, that's it's not a name that I was familiar with at all before doing this episode. No, and you'll sometimes see, uh, like people pop up questions on the internet about whether or not Harold Zidler was based on a, a real person or if he ever was a real person. And sometimes those will mention, like the answers to those will be like, no, there was a man named Charles Zidler that he's sort of based on, but they don't always mention Ule, even though he was really sort of the mastermind behind a lot of it. So I thought it was time he get a little moment in the sun. Yeah. Uh, and like I said, I would love to do a whole long podcast on Moulin Rouge history because that is a rich and deep pool. Uh, so one day, it's on the list. And in the meantime, I have listener mail. Hooray! This is uh, one of my favorite kinds of listener mail. Listener mail about clothes. Uh, it's from our listener, Lori. And she says, Dear Tracy and Holly, uh, she thanks us for the podcast. She says, I currently live in Hong Kong, where I teach English and French to small kids, and my brain is semi-melted by both my audience and the temperature. I have an hour-long commute up and down, and your podcast keeps me alert and informed, so thank you. We are happy to do that for you, Lori. Uh, and she says, I've been meaning to write for a long time, but your episode on Rose Beltin made me realize I had no excuse not to anymore. I trained as a museum conservator, and a couple of years ago, I had the chance to work on a dress that I'm sure you would be interested in. 
She is absolutely correct, by the way. Uh, she goes on to say, from what we know, it was originally an early 18th century French court dress in blue silk entirely embroidered with flowers. The original shape is meant to minimize the waist and emphasize the hips, which had panier, which are the basket type undergarments that made the hips wide. Uh, the, the whole thing weighs an absolute ton, even without all the jewels and the gold thread of a coronation gown. Because of the amount and quality of fabric used, this dress would have been worth a huge amount of money at the time and was certainly an investment for a lady of the French court. Usually, though, these kinds of dresses would have been recycled. The fabric would very likely have been reused for a new dress or trims and ribbons would have been added to stick to fashion as much as possible without having to buy an entirely new outfit. As an aside, we talked about that a little bit in the Rose Bretin episode, that part of her job as a milliner was to kind of refit outfits for the next season so that they could get a little style refresh. Lori goes on to say, you will see in the pictures, which she sent us, that the shape looks a bit loose and some parts of the outfit look a bit discolored. This dress was eventually used during the Victorian era as a costume dress, but by a rather larger lady than its original owner. So the waist had to be loosened considerably and the skirt lengthened. The Victorian bits were nowhere near as good in quality as the original garment and discolored while the blue silk looks just as striking as when it was made. Though I feel rather annoyed at the additions, which don't do anything for the dress and which we can't remove as they are historical repairs, which is conservator jargon for, but it's there and it's part of the object's history. And if I take it away, I will take away part of the object's history. Uh, I am very glad that this dress wasn't taken apart or thrown away when French court fashion was no longer needed. So thank you, fat Victorian lady. And then I will, uh, I'm not reading her whole thing because it's a bit lengthy. She also goes on with a PS that I love, which is we just got our annual passes to Disneyland Hong Kong. And though they have no Haunted Mansion, they have something called Mystic Manor, which is based on early designs for a museum of the supernatural. It finally happened. And Danny Elfman composed the music. As a museum person, former cast member, and Danny Elfman fanatic, that sounds like a dream come true. Uh, yeah, I have heard many times about, particularly in the Victorian era, Existing historical garments really got used in all kinds of ways. And part of it was just a costume ball popularity surge. And part of it was that uh, Victorian era kind of went through this thing where they were fascinated with history and other cultures and kind of trying to integrate them a little bit into their uh day-to-day lives. And so that's why you'll see a lot of, uh, you know, like fabrics from the Orient making their way into or the Orient, as it was called in the Victorian era, making their way into Victorian clothes. Uh, one interesting thing about these types of gowns that she's talking about from the Rococo era, era is that they had like a lacing in the back, even though they usually buttoned or hooked down the front, they had a lacing in the back. So you could have a little bit of ease and give uh, so that if the wearer, because they were very expensive, you know, lost weight or gained weight. They could still keep the dress for quite a while, but apparently in this case, it transcended the ability of the dress to expand and they had to add in these additional pieces. The pictures are absolutely beautiful. And uh as for Mystic Manor, I'm very jealous. But that was an awesome letter, Lori, and I love looking at those pictures. She even sent us beautiful pictures of like the hem of the dress so we could see where the wear and tear was and is quite spectacular. So thank you. Uh, if you would like to write to us and talk to us about historical clothes or Disneyland or Disneyland Hong Kong or really anything that we've talked about or relates to things we've talked about, you should do that at historypodcast at discovery.com. You can also connect with us at facebook.com slash history on Twitter at history at mistinhistory.tumblr.com and on pinterest.com slash history. You can also make your your way to our still fairly young website, which is mistinhistory.com, where you can find all of our episodes and show notes. 
And uh, if you would like to learn more about what we've talked about today, you can go to our parent page, which is HowStuffWorks.com, and uh, do a search for the term gambling. And you will turn up two articles, which struck me as funny because they list one right after the other. One is 10 quick ways to make money, and it mentions gambling as a potential way. And the other is 10 ways people rack up debt and also speaks of gambling. So it's a double-edged sword. Uh, If you would like to learn more about that or just about anything we've talked about today or on other podcasts, you can research that at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 